Our second reading tonight is the words of Christ from Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. You can find it all on page 4 of your bulletin. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For, I, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And from Second Peter. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of the Lord as our salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do to the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me in prayer? Oh God, we ask that the preaching, the teaching of your word would align with your very word that you have spoke because we know that you come to us through your word and you also know every heart and person in this room those that are here seeking, those that are here doubting, those that are here struggling, those that are here um, hopeful and wanting more. Take your word and apply it as you see fit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our larger topic that we're looking at is the idea of God renewing us, whether that be personally in our church together, whether it be in our society. And for that reason, for a second week in a row, we're looking at what it means to renew our minds by way of the Bible. And that's because the Christian faith teaches a pattern. And the pattern is this. God's Spirit renews our minds through His Word. That's how transformation begins. God's Spirit renews our minds according to the word that he has given us. Now, for a moment, consider a bad habit or a vice that you've struggled with in your life. How did it begin? Well, it began with a lie. It always begins with a lie. False words that we began to believe. 
The alcoholic will say to themselves, well, I only drink beer and wine, or I don't drink in the morning. The workaholic will say, well, I'll, I'll have a better life balance when I achieve this next step, this milestone in my career, when I get this standard of living. For all of us, the destructive patterns in our lives begin with a word, and we need a word more powerful than our words to undo it. If our words just did it, we wouldn't be in the fix to begin with. And so God offers a powerful word that leads then to renewal. And yet, there can be pre-beliefs that prevent your access to God's word. Things that, presumptions we have, beliefs that we have in place that will prevent us even getting access to the word that would transform us. And we talked about some of those last week. Maybe it's thoughts like, well, doesn't science disprove the Bible? Makes the Bible impossible. Or maybe one of those thoughts would be, didn't the writers of the Bible just put forth their own agenda and thoughts? Didn't they change it a bunch of times? I referred to those as more what you might call modern worldview questions. But they're not the only questions. Postmodernism, the time that we're in, or you could say post-everythingism, the time that we're in, found this idea that life is just matter and stuff and motion, and that life and you're just molecules and DNA. Postmodernism found that dissatisfying and said, no, it's got to be more than that, and had a reaction against it where you see almost a personalizing and a spiritualizing of things. Earth becomes Mother Earth. Science and technology will take on even a transcendent uh, spirit about it. If you've seen the films uh, Interstellar or uh, Avatar in 2009, that's very much what's being communicated. And so what postmodernism says is we're not primarily natural beings, we are culture beings. We are products of culture. And that brings up a whole other host of questions about the Bible. And that's what I want to look at at this part two on the Bible. And we'll do it like we did last week, looking at popular beliefs and then looking at biblical beliefs. So first of all, what are these popular beliefs in this idea that we're culture beings? And I'll say three. The first is the strongest power is culture. That's the first popular belief. The second one is the highest authority is self. And the third one is the greatest value is happiness. So let me take those three and unpack them a little bit. First, the belief that the strongest power there is is culture. Another way to say it is you and I are culture-bound. Culture-bound. Now, the worldview of modernism said that life is basically defined by impersonal laws, impersonal laws of nature. That's how we get where we are. And I said last week that even affects language. So there was a view that developed about language that sort of went like this. The most trustworthy language are pure propositions. Pure propositions. And so the Bible, because it's written by people from culture and tradition and faith, is tainted and it must be filtered of those things if we're going to get at the truth. 
And the means by which it's done, a discipline is called historical criticism. Now, there's lots I could say about that. I don't have time to say it. And there's positive parts of historical criticism, but I, I want to highlight the way the weaknesses affect people reading the Bible. And I know some of this stuff is technical talk, but we have to hit at it. And let me summarize it in three ways. One is this, the belief that because the past has come to us from flawed and biased people, we can never really be certain of its truth. That's one view. The second view is this, that we must only evaluate past events in light of our present experience, meaning this. If we don't experience miracles now, then that means they never happened then. And the third one is this idea that you can always observe cause and effect in history. So things like supernatural don't compute because only natural cause and effect explains life. Now, one of the modern ways that this took off and took flight was in the 80s and 90s and a little bit of a resurgence in 2000 through uh, a work called the Jesus Seminar. Actually, I think ended up on a Time magazine at some point. Maybe wrong there. But basically, the Jesus Seminar were a group of scholars that came together and said, we are going to evaluate and judge and decide what Jesus said and what he didn't really say. That's why they came together. And you can see how that would come out of that historical criticism view. And as they did that, uh, there were a couple assumptions they had. One is that modern scholars are in a better place to determine that question than the, uh, the apostles were and the writers of the New Testament. That was one view. And another view was a reconstructed gospel would be more trustworthy than the original one. That was just part of the assumptions they were going at. But I hope you see some problems with that. At least I see some problems with it. Once, it assumes a place of intellectual superiority. And so the modern scholars are going, we actually know better and think better than the original writers of Scripture. The second one is, why in the world would a reconstructed text be more objective than the original text? That's another problem you could think about. But a third one would be the Jesus they ended up with was so edited and thinned. I mean, basically, he just sort of said the Lord's Prayer and love your neighbor. Why would anybody kill that guy? doesn't make any sense that someone would kill a guy that just said those things. But behind that greater presumption was this, that you and I are prisoners of our tradition and culture, that we, we are so imprisoned by our beliefs and our culture, that there's no way we can really get at the truth. Even if God spoke the truth in the Bible and the writers in the Bible wrote it, we couldn't get it. So that is behind this idea of uh, we're culture-bound. Kind of a silly illustration, but imagine you're an Ole Miss fan. For some of you, that's not hard to imagine. For those of you, you're like, I can't imagine it, Glenn. Don't even try. Uh, but imagine you're an Ole Miss fan, and I come up to you and I say, is it true that Ole Miss defeated Alabama the last two years? And you would respond by saying, yes. And I would say, now, come on, that's not true. You're a fan. Now, that's crazy, right? Just because someone's a fan doesn't mean they can't tell the truth. Just because the writers in the Bible were fans of Jesus doesn't mean they can't tell the truth. We're not so bound by culture that we can't tell the truth in our biases. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller has said it this way. He says, you can't say that all religious claims are historically conditioned and relative except the one I'm stating right now. Right? 
I mean, you can't say that. But that's essentially what those scholars were doing and what many postmodern people would do. Now, to be fair, postmodernism has helped us be a little bit more self-aware and self-critical about the way our beliefs interact with things. That's been a helpful thing. But what really has helped is God's word to do that. And let me give you two examples from the Bible. The first century church. In the first century, there were probably no two groups that were more, you know, stuck in their culture than the Jewish community and the Gentiles. They both believed they were culturally superior. They hated one another. And that belief even bled into the church, whereby as Gentiles began to come into the early church, some of the Jewish community said, you've got to become Jewish before you can become Christian. You've got to become our culture before you can follow God. Even the apostle Peter said that. What broke through? It was the word of God that broke through. God broke through and gave Peter a vision. He then gave Paul his gospel. And think about it. I mean, that's the only thing that could reverse. It was so entrenched, but they flip. And the gospel then breaks out into the entire world and it moves into every culture. And the Christian faith has had that ability because it does not put culture first, so to speak. That's one example. But the second example is Jesus himself. Jesus grew up in the culture of the Bible, but you find in the Sermon on the Mount, he is a blazing critic of the traditions that were, the cultural traditions that were added onto the scripture. He's merciless the way he talks about those things. Why? Because the word of God is the only thing that is objective, that can look into every culture and speak into it. Those are two examples of how it worked back then. But let me move on to the second belief. The highest authority is self. Now, in the modern worldview, man's reason and rationality is the primary authority. But in the postmodern worldview, desire and will is the primary authority. Uh, our kids are raised in this. I mean, if your kids watch Disney, right, they're going to get a full helping of believe in yourself, express yourself, Right? This is what we're weaned on and what we hear on a regular basis. And in that philosophy, there's something deeper. It's this idea that we have. If I can just get to the deepest desires in my heart, then I'll get truth. The truth is somewhere down in my deepest, deepest desires. And if I can find those things out, then I'll arrive at truth. This is, a, I think, a prevailing popular view today. Basically, my interpretation is the way to truth. My interpretation is the way to truth. Now, we have a very recent example of this thinking. The Washington Post recently did an article on the proposed Bible Museum. And the article uh, is filled of, uh, you know, lots of doubt and skepticism about could a museum like that ever be really authentic? How will it be presented? Is it going to be just trying to convert people? Stuff like that. But what interested me was, uh, and, and by the way, the person that had been proposing this uh, museum, you may or not know, is the Green family, the Hobby Lobby folk, okay? So that even gets added into that if you're familiar with that thing. I don't have time to go into that. But I'll be doing a Hobby Lobby sermon next week, okay? <laughs> so anyway, can't do that. But anyway, listen to how the article ends. 
a recent Washington Post, when the doors open in 2017, the museum of the Bible may surprise the Greens as much as the general public, freeing visitors to choose their own interpretation of the word. Right? That's the highest value that, could, that any museum could offer, that every visitor have their own interpretation of the word. And there you hear the great American value interpretation reigns. It's been a long time standing. I mean, Thomas Jefferson literally read the Bible with a penknife. And any time he came across something that contradicted his morals or reasoning, he cut it out. He just got rid of it. And it's been that same approach that has been gone, you know, for hundreds of years. And in a popular way, it comes down to this belief that it's just your interpretation. And it becomes an intellectually incredible way to basically say, don't contradict me. Right? Don't contradict me. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in a long-time relationship with someone who always believed that their interpretation was the best and never would let you contradict them? Of course you haven't, because it's impossible to have a relationship with someone like that. I mean, you might try, but it's impossible to do that. And so why could we believe we can work that way in our culture? But more so, again, the example of Jesus. Jesus is understood to be the lawgiver, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. But the striking thing about the Christian gospel is it tells us he came as one under the law. You have the lawgiver that actually came and lived under the Old Testament law and obeyed the law, the one who had full reason to interpret it, and yet he embraces the full authority of it. But lastly, one other popular belief before we move on to what the Bible teaches And that is, the greatest value is happiness. And you can link this to what I just talked about. Our Declaration of Independence, of course, says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which translates into, I have a right to be happy. The belief that I have a right to be happy. Now, this isn't just in the culture. It's really interesting to see how it has played out in the church over really a decade, most recently in the same-sex marriage debate but the way the church has dealt with sexuality. Because uh, if you go to the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis, Leviticus 18 and 20, Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about marriage, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you go through the Bible, you find three things consistently taught all the way through. One is that uh, sex is reserved for the covenant of marriage, the promise of marriage. Two, that marriage is between one man and one woman. And three, wherever you see, uh, and then you find prohibitions of homosexual acts. Wherever you see homosexual, homosexuality mentioned, you see prohibition there. So those three things are consistently said. But as the church has been debating and wrestling this, it's very interesting to see how people will argue and deal with this. Because what, what happens is thinking like this. Well, I don't really know what the Bible says there. Maybe I don't agree with it, but I think if two people love each other, they ought to be together. I think we ought to be able to love who we want to love. People have a right to be happy. And so that turns out to be something that actually prevents people from even considering what God would say or why he said. It's this prevailing view in my mind that people should be happy. But there's two problems with that. One, life doesn't agree with you doesn't agree with me, if that's my view. 
This past week, uh, Meg and I had a chance to spend time with a, a woman who's like a spiritual mother to us. And she was telling us about her church small group that she's in, small group of people that meet. And she said, uh, we have, um, well, we have a brilliant man in his 70s who's uh, fighting a debilitating brain disease. We have a young family with two children with uh, cystic fibrosis. And then we have a woman who was driving on her way to church Christmas Day, was hit by a drunk driver, and now she's a paraplegic. Be very hard to go into that Bible and say, uh, that group, and say, you have a right to be happy. It's a very superficial thing to say to someone that has faced adversity. You see, God isn't so concerned about your happiness, he's concerned about your holiness. God isn't so concerned about your self-fulfillment, he's mostly concerned about you becoming a morally beautiful person. Our crosses may look different, but this is his calling in our lives. But secondly, it challenges the definition of happiness. Right before this teaching in the Beatitudes, Jesus um, basically gives us his happy list. You could take the word blessed as happy. Some of you are very familiar with this, but I want you to listen again in light of what I've just said. Happy are the poor in spirit, those that understand their spiritual poverty. Happier those that mourn, not only suffer in life, but even mourn over their sin. Happier those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. You couldn't find a happy list more opposite than America's version of happiness. I mean, you really couldn't find one more opposite. But what you do find with Jesus and his followers, they had this deep joy, this deep fulfillment that came from the word of God in their lives. So those are three popular beliefs that were bound by culture, that the highest authority is self, the greatest value is happiness. Those three things will prevent you from ever getting to the Bible to read it. But let's now talk about what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Scripture incorporates culture. Scripture incorporates culture. Last week I'd said that God had always planned to write his Bible communicated through human writers. That was always his plan. It wasn't plan B. In taking also in consideration their backgrounds, their style, their personalities, their vocabularies, God was comfortable with that. Those things didn't negate the truth could be written. But he also felt free to give laws that were reflected in the neighboring nations. You find this in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is basically a treaty. Those were the treaties that were used in those ancient times. God adopts that and uses it. Why? Well, it would have helped the Israelites understand, right? But there's this reasoning that goes, when people read the Bible, the Old Testament, they'll go, well, wait, there's parallel laws like that in the other nations or parallel wisdom. That must mean God didn't really give it. Well, think about that for a second. Number one, the Bible has similar and dissimilar things from the surrounding nations. But is God not free to give laws that match surrounding nations? Does something have to be culturally new and different for it to be from God? That reasoning doesn't hold up. 
Jesus was well aware of both the culture and the surrounding nations in God's Word and the way it had impacted the Bible, and he felt free to put the full authority of God behind it. But that leads to the second thing the Bible teaches us, and that is that all Scripture has authority, all Scripture. Now, oftentimes I have read and heard people say this, this is a common thing, that Jesus' words are really the truest words, and the Old Testament and the apostles are sort of second-tier truth. That's on a second level. Maybe that's been your view. But just as all along, uh, and another thing that goes with that is the belief that Jesus doesn't really care about these commandments and laws. He really likes grace and love. The only problem is, is Jesus is challenging that point of view today. You heard it in his words, and I want to read it to you in his words. First of all, the Old Testament. If you look here, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. That's shorthand for the entire Old Testament because the Hebrews believed all of Scripture was prophesied. So he's talking about the entire Old Testament. He says, not the smallest letter, like our letter A, or the smallest stroke, like the difference between a small C and an E, those things won't even be abolished. The entire authority of all the law and the prophets, he's saying, will abide. In John 10.35, Jesus is having an argument with some religious leaders. And he uses just one word of the Old Testament in his argument. And then he says, don't you know the Scripture cannot be broken? One word of Scripture in his viewpoint can't be broken. This is the view of Jesus, not fundamentalists. This is the view of Jesus himself. And that is because the entire, Jesus' entire life was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. When he started his ministry, he started by reading a passage out of Isaiah. When he would argue with his opponents, he would say, you're an arrow because you have not read And then on his cross, as he's being crucified, what comes out of his mouth? Psalm 22. Jesus had lived the scripture. It was part of him. So when the Apostle Paul says, as we read last week, that the scripture is God-breathed, he's not inventing that himself. He's echoing Jesus. But Jesus also had this view of the New Testament. Just as God intended to write his word through the human writers of the Old Testament, Jesus intended to finish his word through his apostles. Listen to what he says. In his final teaching with them, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then if you go to the book of Acts, when Jesus has risen up, he spends 40 days with the disciples, basically doing Bible study with them. And that's basically the content of the New Testament we have. And so you see, Jesus' plan was always to complete his word, and he regards it not as second tier, but as first tier, because it's his word. And the Old Testament was God's word. And so it's very important that we don't create tears and say, well, you know, some of you may have familiar with red letter Bibles, right? The Bibles that have Jesus' words in red letters. Bad idea. It gives this idea that these are the real important words. I'm not trying to take away the words of Jesus at all. We'll get to that in a second. But we have to have a fuller view of that. 
But the third point and the last point, and by the way, I want you to notice, Jesus warns if anyone relaxes even one command or someone teaches to relax one command, they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. This is not a low view of the Bible. But thirdly and finally, Scripture, the New Testament, or the Scripture teaches it must be interpreted rightly, not just as a matter of opinion. First of all, the scope of the Bible. Now, you might remember when you were in school and you had to write a thesis. And uh, if you got off track and started talking about things that weren't part of that thesis, what happened? You got marked wrong, right? You got a bad grade. You got to stay on the thesis. The thesis of the Bible is the coming of God's kingdom that he might redeem the world from sin. That's the thesis of the Bible. Why do I tell you that? Because everything that is not relevant to that thesis, God didn't feel obliged to include. You might, but what about UFOs? What about dinosaurs? You know, what about... Listen, the Scripture is true as it makes statements of geography and history, but it's not primarily a geography book. It's not primarily a cosmology of the universe. It's not even a primarily a biography of Jesus. If you ever ask, why do we get a bunch when he's a little and a little when he's a boy and a bunch later? This is a bad biography. It wasn't meant to be a biography of Jesus. Its thesis is God's mission to redeem through his kingdom. And that includes a lot, though. That includes the big philosophical questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? It includes things like relationships. It includes things like my vocation. It includes things like what do I do with guilt and fear and suffering? It includes things like what about death? It includes things about what about the afterlife? There's a lot that's included there. And everywhere it speaks, it is sufficient. As the New Testament say that God's word, everything we need for life and godliness, God has given to us. Or as we read last week, the Apostle Paul would say, the Word of God is breathed out and it equips you for every good work. But not just scope, context. Once Jesus was teaching to a group of people, and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed on earth. Now that's become a point where people go, aha, Jesus committed intellectual error. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed on earth. Well, a couple things you could do. One, if you wanted to hunker down and study the text, you would see that he used two different words for earth, one land that was more local and one that was earth. And then you could take the context in view that he's speaking to people in the region of Palestine. Now, Jesus theoretically could have said, well, actually, the smallest seed is the epiphytic seed that's in the rainforest in the orchards. I'm guessing his crowd would have probably went, Huh? No compute. The smallest seed in the region of Palestine was a mustard seed. That's what connected with people. And context means lots of things. You don't read biblical poetry like you read the Gospels, and you don't read the Gospels like you do the prophetic books, and you don't read, you know, the wisdom literature like you read the book of Revelation. I mean, the Bible, after all, is a book you got to think about what you're reading. And God gives us skills and hints even within the text itself that help us. Two other things. Just because Scripture records something doesn't mean it approves it. Some of you were here when we studied the book of Judges. Man, oh man, these people were terrible. Just because God recorded what Samson did didn't mean he was going, hey, amen for Samson. Sometimes the idea of what about polygamy? 
Just because God records polygamy and some of the people in the New Testament committed it, it doesn't override what he said in Genesis. One man, one woman. Also, Scripture doesn't say everything it says in one place. You have to be willing to to read the big view in the Bible, interpreting the Bible. This often comes up, again, recently in the debate with same-sex marriage, but I think it goes beyond that where people would say, yeah, but what about slavery? Or what about all those Old Testament laws? We, We don't fulfill that stuff. We'll get to the fulfillment in a second. But listen, anybody that actually would care to study all the passages about slavery would see that the Bible never supports chattel slavery, kidnapping, never supports it. But it's just easier to go to one place. And so to interpret the Bible, you got to be realizing, i got to read the Bible in light of the Bible. But lastly, the theme. Coming of the kingdom to redeem. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. That means to fill it up. I came to fill up God's word to its intended purpose. I meant to clarify it. I meant to deepen it. I meant to drive it home to where it was always going. And so you find in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saying six times the Old Testament said, but now I say to you, he wasn't contradicting the Old Testament. He said, let me tell you where it was going. Where you find in Luke 24, the risen Jesus meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he gives them a big Bible study. And you know what he does in that Bible study? He shows them how the entire Bible points to him. Just like the book of Hebrews would say, God has spoken to us in previous ages. In the last day, he's spoken to us by his son. What does that mean? It means if you read the Bible correctly, you must see Christ at the center of it. The offices of prophet, priest, and king all converge in the great prophet, priest, and king. All the offerings and little sacrifices are manifested in the one who would give the great sacrifice. Even all those crazy food laws. What's one of the reasons we don't obey those food laws? Because Jesus told us not to. Jesus talks to that in Mark 7. He says, listen, those were object lessons to teach you about things that are unclean and clean. So you keep your lives away from morally unclean things. And by that, he was declaring that all foods were clean. Temporary object lesson. It's not that hard to interpret. Listen, there are hard texts, and I've spent my life reading them. I've gone to seminary for them. Yeah, there's hard text. But the major doctrines, just stop saying it's a matter of interpretation. I know you all don't do it, but if you you do that, if you go, yeah, but what about this negates that? Well, we don't understand what was the head covering, so that means this isn't true. Unless you want to live in skepticism, and that's where postmodernism actually takes us, cynicism and skepticism. Nothing can be trusted or true. But here's my closing out. What I, I want to tie it back to renewal. When we begin to get in on this word of God, that's where the power of renewal comes. When Jesus taught crowds... It was very different. Their response to hearing the religious leaders teach and his is very different. For the religious leaders, they taught with the authority that burdened people. The New Testament would say it was a form of godliness with no power. But it said when Jesus taught, he taught as one with authority, and they were amazed. Not cowering. It was an authority that lighted up their heart. 
that grabbed them and inspired them. And they were drawn to him because they understood that God has really said something. He hasn't left us in the dark. He hasn't left us to wander in a bunch of relativism. He spoke to us because any parent speaks to their child. And he made sure that his voice could be heard. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. And if you hear that voice, what a God you will find. You will find a personal God, a personal God who wants his name to be known by you. You will find the source of all beautiful, true, good things. You will find one who wants to commune with you, and you have communion with other people. If you find this God, you will find divine wisdom. How do you live? How do you even know how to live? So many big decisions. You will find a God that gives you practical wisdom for how to live in a way that isn't self-destructive but righteous. You'll find explanation for evil and suffering in the world we have, the heartbreaking, broken world. It's not a result of the natural order, and evolution and technology will not fix it. Instead, you'll hear the message of a Lord that comes into creation, the only faith that would teach this, the God who so loves us, he becomes one of us. And he walks not just for a day, but he walks for 33 years. And he walks not sitting in a palace with a king. He walks just trudging it out like you and I with everyday suffering. And he's the one that lives a righteous life that we couldn't live. And he's the one that is willing to be humiliated and judged for our sin. This is the God that you will find in the Bible and only in the Bible the God that can truly take away guilt and sin and make you feel holy and blameless for the first time in your life. That's what you'll find from this God in the Bible. And lastly, you will find you are incorporated into a purpose that's so grand, not just punching the clock, not just seeing who gets to climb up the ladder and make the most amount of money, not someone who just can get a nice family and then retire. You will find a story where you are whereby incorporated into universal, eternal purposes to renew not only this community and this city, but the world. Now, if that's justification for a nonprofit, I don't know what is. This is what you'll find in this word if you read it. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for what you have given us. Open your word to everybody here. According to your will, in Christ's name, amen.